Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1471 entitled Tokyo Gory. <laughs> <laughs> Our podcast title is Oh My Godzilla. I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Wow. It is. I mean, I'm just overawed by our names, but <laughs> the, uh, thanks, thanks here to Banksia, key what there, before us. And now we are rolling into Zero G with Godzilla. Yes, watch out. Minus one. And we'll also have a look at the new Doctor Who, the yes. 60th anniversary series, but 70th anniversary for Godzilla. We were talking about... <sighs> Oh, franchises with long legs. doesn't get any longer than 500 feet. <laughs> yes, indeed. No, he, he doesn't actually have 500 feet, Godzilla. I know he's mutated, mm. but he's just like, you know. Thousand, Not yet. <laughs> thousand feet tall, something like that. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah. So I reckon that Godzilla actually now sort of stands in that sort of realm of, you know, like, Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan. Yep. I reckon they're up there with that. And that just came to mind as one enormously entertaining crossover. <laughs> you could ever do that. Look, it all started with Godzilla back in 1954, mm-hmm. or as they call it in Japan, Gojira, uh, Ishiro Honda's movie that came back in the day. Um, <laughs> a bit haggled around depending on... Which version you see, you know, the uh, Americanized version with Raymond Burr and mm-hmm. all those other things. There's a whole lot of things behind that. This new one, Godzilla Minus One, is directed and written and also he's a visual effects supervisor by Takashi Yamazaki. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those Japanese filmmakers who just loves Western films, amongst other things. But, you know, he likes sites, Close Encounters and Star Wars and all that sort of stuff. And he got his start basically working as a miniature builder for Tatsuo Shimamura at his animation and special effects studio back in the 80s. So you can see that's where his sort of thing has been. Yeah. But he started out doing some short, well, some uh, science fiction movies, uh, Juvenile in 2000, uh, which was about um, a group of kids who had a talking alien robot. They're in the woods. They find this thing. It's going to save them from an alien invasion. You know how it works. The classic. (laughs) The classic. Uh, Then he did another science fiction one called Returner in 2002. These are his sort of directorial debuts and uh, it was about a woman in the future mm-hmm. uh, time traveler comes to recruit her all that sort of stuff and then he shifted away from the science fiction into i was going to say a more serious mode but that's ridiculous there is no more serious than science fiction uh, especially if you happen to be from syria out there in space now the idea of him transferring over to other sorts of films. Basically, he was doing a lot of adaptations of manga. 
Ah, uh, yes. So, yeah, his sort of breakthrough was a film called Always Sunset on Third Street. And he did a number one and a number two of those. And in the number two one, he had a, a CGI Godzilla appearing in this sort of slice of life thing, which yep. is actually what you would have happening to you <laughs> in, in Tokyo. So that it, it makes total sense. Uh, so, okay, so he did that. And he went on to do, like, the 2010 Space Battleship Yamato live-action adaptation, which I really enjoyed. He'd done a lot of other uh, manga, anime adaptations, like Stand By Me, Dodamon, uh, Parasite, uh, that's with S-Y-T-E, not mm-hmm. uh, the other one, and The Great War of Archimedes. So there's a whole bunch of ones that he did. So this one is his new one, and I th- just think this is a great idea and we'll talk about this at a fair bit of length today. Yeah. But we'll give you a bit of a track from the soundtrack album of this and of the Godzilla Minus One. And although it's um, uh, from his actual soundtrack, he's actually quoting musically from the, uh, the original soundtrack, as you would do because it just doesn't get any better than the original Godzilla soundtrack, which was by... <laughs> uh, well, okay, this one is done by, is by uh, Naiko Sato and he, he did this. F- he did notes from Akira Ifukube's original score to Godzilla. That's right. <laughs> Some of this material I've been over so many times that it just goes in one ear and out the other now. So we've got the, uh, the Godzilla suite from Godzilla uh, minus one. And the minus one, actually, just get this up out of the way up front, mm. uh, is referring to the fact that World War II, which is where this is set, the aftermath of that for Japan is, well, you know, they're like year zero, basically. And so taking it minus one means it's back before that. So, you know, the country's reeling from all of the damage that's been inflicted upon it by the Allies. And, <laughs> you know... There's a question about that to start with. And that that actually made me wonder about this film. Is it going to be an apologetic film Mm. uh, or what? But it's not. It's way more nuanced than you can possibly imagine. Melbourne's own Triple R. Yeah. We had a bit of a quote there from Nako Sato's Godzilla minus one soundtrack. Obviously quoting heavily there from the original... 1954 film and many others too because that's that's the go-to uh, music that they always <laughs> use for it. Yeah. All right, now we are talking about Godzilla Minus One. Very hard to catch up with. Yes, and it is such a shame that the distribution is so light at the moment on this because word of mouth is firing and I'm hearing a lot of people talk about this and then it's really hard. Word of mouth. It's <laughs> <Is> firing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In true Godzilla style. But truly, I know a lot of people want to try and get along to this one, but it's already quite limited in its release in cinemas across Melbourne now. Mm. Yeah, even at IMAX, um, it's like, you know, tonight and tomorrow night or something yeah, like that. Yeah, scaled right back to weekdays and only a couple of sessions and a lot of cinemas aren't even showing this one. Mm. I, I got hit by a sort of a perfect storm. Some of the uh, the multiplexes that I frequent, um, they're doing renovations and stuff, so yeah, they've yeah. got limited screens anyway. Yeah, exactly. Did we mention as well that this one was released on November 3rd? So technically it has been out for a while. Mm. Um, 
and that matches up with the first release of the first Godzilla film in 1954. So they call the 3rd of November Godzilla Day in honour of that. So they're really hammering home this kind of Godzilla franchise and the longevity of this concept. Well, they did a shout-out to it on uh, Monarch Legacy of Monsters the other day. They said uh, they were talking about G-Day minus one. Yes, yeah. there you go. So speaking of, of its place in the uh, the franchise, mm-hmm. uh, I actually had a good look at this. This is the 37th overall film in the Godzilla franchise. Yep. And the 33rd from Toho Studios. So... To explain the different eras of this, they actually plug into like uh, which who was the emperor at each time. Mm. So the Shaura era is from 1954 to 1975. Yep. And then they, they do a, a reboot in the Heisei era from 84 to 95. There is some gaps and overlaps because there are little sure. hiatuses and things. Yep. And that uh, Heisei era, it only connects with the first 1954 film. Uh, it's actually like a direct sequel. So yeah, okay. they've ignored all of the rest of the ones. <laughs> and let's face it, there are a lot of really bizarre movies from the Shara era. So. Yeah. Then we get to the second reboot, because if it works once, do it again. Millennium era ones, and that's from 1994 to 2004. Yep. And again, only the original 1954 film is in the sort of timeline of that one. Yes. But there are many grace notes that are repeated, like we have our Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. created to fight Godzilla. We have Godzilla versus just about every different Anything monster. Anything you like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> King Ghidorah, Gamera, Mothra, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. They're all there. So, you know, these echoes keep appearing in the... Then we've got the... Um, uh, we're in the era now called the Raiwa era, yep. and this is the fifth film in that, and that's uh, from 2016 onwards. The first film in, in the Raiwa era was Shin Godzilla in 2016. So good. Well, Shin basically means um, core or it could also be seen as God or, uh, mm. you know, true. So they're trying to get back to it. Yeah. That was a great film. It was such a nice surprise. And I think what was interesting about that is it really went into a lot of the politics, bureaucracy and mm. that element of it. It was as much about the politics around how a large-scale disaster would be handled as it was about the monster stuff. Yeah. So I wasn't sure actually going into Godzilla Minus One, and we'll get to it, as to whether this would be more of the same, but mm. well, time will tell. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. I did say that the uh, Minus One movie was the fifth of this era of Godzilla movies, and, of course, the other three are animated, which you can watch on Netflix. We've talked about these before. There's Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters, City on the Edge of Battle, and The Planet Eater, which are all set in the far future. Yep. And there's also the Godzilla Singular Point anime series, which, again, we mentioned the other day, and that's on Netflix too. So that's all in the the Raiwa era. So that all mounts up to this one being the fifth of that one. And this is all separate to the US American films. Yes, this is Toho's franchise, their reboot of Godzilla that they decided to do after Legendary Pictures in the US did their own one in 2014. That was the Gareth Edwards one. Mm. And they, of course, had... a toehold in the American films. You've got the Very good. <laughs> the Roland Emmerich 1998 TriStar film, the much maligned one. Has it got Matthew Broderick in it? I think it is. Uh, but the most important thing is that it's got Jean Renault pretending to be Elvis. Oh, I, forgive it, I forgive it so many things for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's all of those ones and the Monarch, the, the soon-to-be four Monarch films yes. and, and their television 
chain as well. And, yeah. and we've discussed the Monarch ones, the legendary ones at length because, well, because Monarch hasn't, hasn't caught up with us yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, yeah, and I've enjoyed all of those. They've been really good films. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite interesting that they're sort of running side by side and there's actually, as part of the contract, Toho can't release their own Godzilla films in years when the US films are being released. Are you getting a whole sort of MCU, Sony well, vibe here? Well, it's interesting because Keiji Ota, who's from Toho, is interested in the idea of, you know, sharing the universe, having like a monster series, something yeah. like the MCU, but where the M stands for monster. So, I mean, these are all, it's interesting when you start cracking into rights and who owns what and who makes what off whose movie. So I think there's a little bit of this whole Spider-Man energy going on with Godzilla across Japan and the US. Well, this film is set in between 1945 and 1947. So World War II is, is over in the yeah. Pacific, uh, which means it's, it's pretty much over everywhere. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. so we're strictly in post-war era now. And there are... Actually, it's a fairly tight core of characters in this. Yes. And what the director ha- and the writer has done is create a, uh, a macro look at the Godzilla character yeah. uh, and, a, and a Godzilla incursion via uh, a small lens, like the yeah. lens of a family and a work group. Yes. Yes. And that's always a great idea because, yeah. you know, yeah. these events are so... We need something to latch on to as an as a audience member. Mm. So let's look at the characters. Yeah, so as you mentioned, despite the sheer scale of everything we're looking at, and we're digging through a lot of deep metaphors and ideas around post-war guilt and, you know, Japan during the war, etc. But we need to boil that down so we can live it through one man's experience. And our kind of core of this story is Koichi Shikishima. Now, he was a kamikaze pilot during World War II. And if you know a little bit about World War II, you might ask, well, how is he in this story? Well, he's obviously a failed kamikaze because pilot. he should really have not survived because kamikaze pilots were intended to sacrifice their lives as part of the battle plan during World War II. So he's played by Ryunosuke Kamiki. And now, Kamiki, he is very well-known mm. actor in Japan. He's been acting and voice acting for over 20 years, starting out in 1999 as a child actor. Mm. He also is no sort of stranger to diversifying his talents. He's written a book. He's hosted a radio show. He's coming for us, Rob. He, he's, an, <laughs> he's, he's, an, he's done archaeology. Yeah, he's done theatre. He's directed a music video. He's definitely got a lot of wide interests, but he's really made a mark on the acting space in Japan. And some of us might know him from his work in Studio Ghibli films, if you listen to it in the original Japanese. Mm-hmm. He was the voice for many films um, and was discovered by Miyazaki himself. Mm. So he was in Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, Arietti and Mary and the Witch's Flower. Almost, I think he's uh, known as the, the, the Ghibli child. Yes, yes, because he's done very particular, well-known mm. child characters in these, in these Ghibli films. He's also done voice work in... Other fantastic anime such as Your Name, Summer Wars, Weathering With You and Suzume. And he did the Japanese voice dubbing for the South Korean film Parasite. So he did the Japanese voice dub for uh, Choi Ushik's character, who's the son of the family. So he is known as the 100 billion yen man because he (laughs) was in seven of the top ten highest grossing 
Japanese films of all time in Japan's box office. So needless to say, if you're Japanese, you probably are very well familiar with Kemiki's work. And as are we without knowing from all of his voice performances. Oh, my God. He's a, playing a, Kami, a Kemiki Kazi. <laughs> exactly. And so his character in this... He he has a lot of, I mean, PTSD. He's struggling a lot with his experiences during the war and his actions during the war as mm, well. Mm. And not least grappling with, I mean, this happens in the first 10 minutes, so I don't believe it's a spoiler. He's one of his very early encounters with Godzilla. So, so he not only has uh, combat fatigue, yeah. he has PTSD, which in this case means post-Titan stress disorder, to borrow the... Uh, Legacy, yeah. <laughs> so Quite. he's, look, he's on the back foot. He arrives back into Tokyo, a Tokyo that has been decimated by bombings and air raids. And he sort of makes a bit, as we follow him over the years, um, he builds together a little bit of a found family. Now, mm. as part of that found family, we have Minabe Hamaba. Wait, ruined that. Minabe Hamabe as Noriko Oishi. Now, she plays a character who Shikishima comes into contact with fairly early on. Uh, she has with her in tow a baby. Which is not hers. Which is not hers. So these three characters, they're all coming together as these kind of remnants of wartime. They've lost their families. They're trying to build back up and, you know, start to make it again. And they really just bond together. And they're actually in the ruins of Tokyo. And yes. this is a Tokyo that's been firebombed. Yeah. Yep. And as you may know, the, uh, the the firebomb raids in 1945 and so on, it was the most single most destructive bombing raid in human history. And this is surpassing the atomic bomb of Hiroshima. So more people died in this, initially at least. Yes. So it, they're in this absolute ruination of a landscape Scraping a bare existence. And we start to get a, an idea about where the concept of Godzilla has come from, especially considering it originally appeared in the 1950s. So these are all themes that become important to what the film's about later. Hmm. But just to touch a little bit on Hamabe, so, so she's the actress playing Noriko. She was born after Kamiki, who she's playing opposite against, started acting, which I thought was quite funny. But he started as a child, so their age difference isn't that much. Now, she's been in a lot of live-action adaptations of quite popular manga, video games. So she's pretty well-known in Japan as well. She was in the Ace Attorney adaptation. Takeshi Mike. Yes, yes. I think, honestly, Mike is so prolific that I think it would <laughs> be hard to stumble across a Japanese actor who hasn't been in one of his films. Well, the, the great Yokai War, that was a Mike one too. And uh, she was, in the last couple of years, she's been in quite a few really high-grossing films in Japan. So mm. she was in an adaptation called Cursed in Love. She was in The Promised Neverland. And she was in one of um, this director's, uh, Yamazaki's films, The Great... The Great... What's it called again? The Great War of Archimedes. Yes. So she starred in that as well. Yeah. And what's interesting about these two, so we've got Shikishima and also Noriko, is that before they were cast in... Before they were cast... No, they were cast in this before they were then also cast as the main couple in, like, this ongoing serial, like, Japanese serial. So it's kind of known as an Asadora. And so she was cast by NHK, which is a channel in Japan. And so she's going to star alongside Kimiki, who plays Shikishima. And they appear in this ongoing story called Ranman. 
and it's actually filming now and it, then it's going to air on NHK and it's a morning drama. It airs every day, Monday to Saturday between 8 and 8.15. So can we, can we imagine, <laughs> can we imagine them as like being the same character? Well, I think, and it's probably, <laughs> I, I'm very curious as to how it's going to go because they've already been introduced as these, this sort of um, couple, I suppose, in this film. And then they're going to be in this serial. And it's a, a troubled couple because, it you is. know, they've got the, the post-stress disorder from the war and and she's been through that too, you know. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, and trying to look after this toddler and get by on nothing. Yeah, exactly. And it's of, And of course the Somebody has to get a job and there are jobs in the works, but some hideously dangerous ones. Absolutely. And that is unfortunately what Shikishima has to go and do. So he gets a job as a minesweeper on a boat. So basically he heads out as part of a crew on a little wooden boat and they scour the seas and they sort of um, chop the tethers on mines so they float to the surface and then they shoot at the mine so it explodes. It's a wooden boat because it won't detonate the magnetic uh, detonators on uh, the mines, which are designed to sink steel-hulled yep. ships. Yep. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that they can't detonate just by contact alone on anything else. So still extremely risky. Mm. I do want to touch on some of his crewmates because I think yeah. they also become a really core part of the heart of this film. Yep. So let's whip through some of them. And they've got some really interesting kind of actors playing them as well. So we have Yuki Yamada playing a character called Shiro Mizushima. He's one of the crew on the Shinsei Maru, which is the boat that Shikishima is working on as the minesweeper. Now, Yamada's been acting for 10 years or so. His father's actually quite a famous um, professional baseball player. And he he's working a lot. So in 2017, he was in 14 movies. <laughs> so oh he's, he's working hard. He's hustling. And he also takes on kind of a range of roles. Um, so they kind of, in Japan, he's known as a bit of a chameleon. And he's a star on the rise. He was recently awarded the JQ, nope, GQ Japan's Man of the Year in a category called Breakthrough Actor. I feel like he is playing this sort of young man who's not actually fought in the war or anything. Yes. He, I feel like he's actually playing sort of like a mirror for Koichi. Yes. He was like that before the war. And he's also a little, he's meant to be a little bit of a, comedy foil in a way like he's a little bit overdone but mm. obviously those characters always kind of have their moment to shine and I think Mi- Mizushima has that moment as well in this film so he's one of our crew we also have uh Munetaka Aoki as Sosaku Tachibana uh he's a, te- a former navy technician uh, also working on the boat so he's one of the crew that Shikishima kind of grows quite close to they call him Doc uh, no, this isn't Doc. Oh, it's not this Doc. is not Doc. Uh, this is there's another technician on the boat. There. Oh yes, yes. Uh, so he's been also been acting for a long time, twenty years. I didn't recognise a lot of his credits, but he was in Battle Royale two. <laughs> again, everybody was in Battle Royale two. <laughs> and again, it had it had to be Royale. You had yeah, to have all of the yeah. all of the actors. And he's also been in a lot of anime and manga adaptations as well. Uh, he was, of course, in a Mike movie. He was in Harakiri, Death of a Samurai. And he was also in Scorsese's movie Silence, which oh. is about some priests in Japan, has Liam Neeson in it, Andrew Garfield. So those are some of the interesting pickings I took out of his filmography. But then on to 
Hidetaka Yoshioka, who plays Kenji Noda, who is the doc, as you mentioned. He's also former Navy, former weapons engineer, um, and he also is kind of key in pulling together a bit of a plan for the events that are going to unfold in this film. He's standing in for the obligatory scientist in any of the Godzilla movies. Yes, and he plays it well. He's got the look down. He's got the vibes down. He's probably most well-known in Japan for playing in a popular drama called Dr. Koto's Clinic. Mm -hmm. But he did win a Japanese Academy Award for his work in one of um, Yamazaki's films, The Always Sunset on Third Street. Yes. And he must have been pretty good because he also won it for Always Sunset on Third Street (laughs) 2. Wow. (laughs) It must be a great couple of films. He's perfect in this role, actually. I can see him... um, Sort of sweating over the ideas, and he's he's come back to a very fairly basic job yeah, from his yeah. point of view. On the other hand, it's a very dangerous job. Yes, and I think that the the crew really come together uh, to support our our hero. Yeah, but also it makes a believable. There's a number of different films tucked away in this movie. Yes, it makes a very believable workplace. Yes, yes, it's also a bit of a workplace drama. Hmm. And, yeah, two found families that he's managed to find with his crew on the boat and also at home. Oh, the captain of the boat. Let's not pass him over. Um, I think that was... No, Mio Tanaka. Um, is that No, that's the other boat. Oh, well. Yeah, it, yeah. It's so very we've complicated. Co- we've covered there, our There are two crew. boats, yeah. Covered but anyway, the captain is functioning very much like Quint in the yeah. Jaws movie. Uh, like the Robert Shaw character. He's it's sort of the older, uh, more hard-bitten, more cynical guy, but he knows what everybody should be doing and he's yeah. he's he's brave as a lion. Yes. Oh, sorry. His name is Kuranasuke Sasaki. Yes. Uh, Yoji Akitsu. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, he's mostly known for his work in TV, but his family does own a sake brewery in Kyoto mm. and his family did not care for his acting career until they realised that they could incorporate it and do some <laughs> collaborations. So they released sake named after projects that he had worked on, which I thought was pretty funny. So they've obviously embraced his his uh, acting dreams. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake. Uh, I also want to shout out to the, I think it might be at least two two children who play yes. the uh, the kid in yeah. this movie. Yeah. One of the, you know, the older, I mean, the other one, the, the, the ba- very baby doesn't do a whole lot. But No, we don't need to credit her. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the older one, um, yeah. she really is a fine actress at that age. She knows how to pull those heartstrings yeah. and cry on command. Her name is Sei Nagatani and she plays Akiko, who is the baby that was found uh, early in the film and then grows up with them. I do just want to quickly shout out Sakura Ando, who plays Sumiko Ota, who's a neighbour of Shikishi. We're pretty light on women in this film, honestly. Uh, so I did want to mention her. And she's won a lot of awards for her work in acting. She was in a great film called Shoplifters. And she's also in... I just really wanted to shout her out because she was in a movie called Where Millennials Got a Problem? The movie. Oh, she's playing the neighbour, isn't she? She's playing she? the yeah. neighbour who helps out taking mm. care of the daughter. And so, you know, I mean, as we were saying, two two found families in this. Yeah. And, or chosen families, I suppose, is more appropriate. And one of them is in the ruins in in Tokyo. The other is on this small minesweeper that's doing this horribly dangerous job. Yeah. And I feel like they've really got a fine balance there. Yes, absolutely. And, of course, there is actually another option, but there's probably too much stuff in this film already. Um, uh, When uh, when the the female lead goes off to work in the city Mm. in an office... 
Um, I'm presuming that she's off. You know, we'll never actually see that. They could have done something with that too, but yeah. that would have got a bit crowded. <laughs> yeah, I think it's got just enough of the personal on-the-ground stories mm. and just enough action already. Or on the ground or hanging from skyscrapers. Or... Hanging off a train. <laughs> All right, let's have The Ballad of Godzilla here. This is by Stephen Trulock and it's from The Road Back Home and it's just a, a strange little piece I'm thinking. I know, let's have some fun. <laughs> Yeah, just a bit of fun there. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> Stephen Trulock with The Road Back Homes, the album, and The Ballad of Godzilla, who certainly, you know, songs will be sung about G-Day. And this is about a G-Day, Godzilla Day, back in 1947. Yes. So, you know, they've gone right back to these sort of origins and... Explain how Godzilla was just a big giant monster, you know, yep. not much bigger than a T-Rex, maybe three size times the size of a T-Rex. Yep. Got irradiated at Bikini Atoll yep. and, you know, just went ginormous. Yeah, 50 metres in length according mm. to the height of what, of what we're talking in Godzilla minus one at least. Mm. Quite large. Quite large, as is how it's done in the box office in, mm. U- in the US and North America. So... It's actually made about $15 million, uh, and that's just for North America, which is putting it as the highest-grossing Japanese live-action film of all time. And I think because of the word of mouth, because people are talking about it and it's doing quite well, it's expanding in movie theatres. I wish it would happen here, but expanding to more theatres um, over there. It was $15 million budget, apparently. It was, it was, mm. and it's definitely made much more than that in Japan alone. <laughs> Um, but I did see something that was talking about how in Japan there's no unions. There is not. For crew and acting. Mm. And so there's probably some nuances to how they get budgets. Oh, absolutely so some nuances to it. I think, but look, regardless, it's done extremely well and I think exceeded expectations not just domestically in Japan but also in the US. Mm. And hopefully we'll still continue to make more money. I think it's been a nice surprise as well. It looks like it cost a couple of hundred million, actually. The special effects are incredible for the budget that we're talking about here. Mm, mm. It's really well done. And I also think he's leveraged, and the director does talk about this, some of the strategies around similar to used in Jaws where you can create a bit of tension without having to show all of Godzilla. Mm. But we do see him in all his glory in plenty of action scenes, so don't worry. Oh, yes, indeed. Look... It's it's largely a sea story, I think. Yes. Uh, not, and I don't mean sea grade, I mean on the ocean. Yeah. Uh, the, the director's taken a big drumful of chum from Spielberg's Jaws movie. Um, there's a, so many other elements in it. We were talking about the human factors in this before, but uh, there's a little bit of the usual Japanese cinematic preoccupation with exotic experimental military aviation. Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. scene in, uh, for example, Miyazaki films, for yep. one. Um, then, there, of course, there is Godzilla. Yeah. You know, brilliantly realised here, a more feral, primal force than we've seen for a while. Yeah. None of this pretending that he's some kind of uh, ben- almost benevolent superhero on I, our side. Yeah. It's interesting. Some portrayals of Godzilla, he's quite cute, really. <laughs> he's sort of something that you feel for. But in this film, they've definitely gone, this is a creature an other creature, a creature mm. from beyond. A force of nature. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of deep dives into the procedural. Um, 
the way he can regenerate from a point-blank main gun hit from a warship. Mm. Uh, the spinal plates that pop out rather like... I, this is my idea. I think that they're like the moderating rods in a nuclear reactor. Mm. When they're out, look out. Yeah. You know, and um, actually there's a, a pretty good plan to destroy Godzilla in light of the obstacles that you face doing yeah. that. Um, and I thought that was actually kind of cool. I thought that actually might work. Yeah. <laughs> and so... You know, this is a creature of enormous capability for destroying things, basically. Yeah. And there is that in plenty because he does come ashore. I Yeah, I do think there's the right amount of proportion of him at sea and battling him at sea. And, of course, you do need to have the destruction of the city mm. scene if it's a Godzilla film. And I think the, the scene of Godzilla when he does make it to land is there's some fantastic cinematography and some really great shots that hammer home his allegory to yeah. nuclear weapons. Yeah, and it's of, of course, this is a film that's made for Japanese audience to start with. Yeah. So it feels like, and because we are, well, I, I don't live in Japan and I don't know all that much about how it goes on there, apart from Miyazaki films <laughs> and Astro Boy and that sort of thing. But to me, it seems like it's very much, you'll be able to call out that building there if you mm. live in Tokyo and that one there or perhaps doesn't exist anymore, but you know... That I mean, maybe I'm not that familiar with 1940s Japan. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, after it was raised in the firebombs, perhaps there aren't that as many landmarks as you think. But, you know, there, then there's a political aspect of it. The government doesn't want to tell the public. Mm. Uh, they don't want to own responsibility for causing a panic, which is very much like Jaws. Yeah. Let me tell you, they're going to need a bigger boat after this one. And, and Japan has to also manoeuvre around post-war Soviet-US tensions as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's actually quite complicated. Mm, and, mm. and that's what reminds me of Shin Godzilla. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. Although we don't actually see as much of that as hear about it from our from our, uh, our, our ocean-weary crew. Yes, and I think that's kind of more of a means to an end for them having to handle it themselves so we can see that action on screen rather than a clear plot point. And I thought it wasn't an apologetic film, you know, an apologist film for, uh, you know, Japanese uh, militarism or anything like that. I thought they had a good nuanced take on that mostly. I thought it was actually quite interesting how inwardly it was looking and working through some of that post-war mm. trauma, post-war guilt, that kind of thing. And there was some particularly interesting dialogue around that mm. that I thought felt very it – was, it was really tapping into something that I thought made the film much more interesting and layered. Yeah, they were taking it back from the military and the, and the government, more of a, a, a citizen level sort of – and talk, yeah, really uh, war is the, you know, the individual lives and the individual efforts and the impact of how war was treated at the time. And there's even a Spider-Man New York-like moment for the long-suffering citizens of Tokyo in this where, well, I won't go into that because it's a bit of a spoiler, but, you know, they kind of rally in a, in a way that I felt, felt like Spider-Man. Mm. And the ocean-going footage of this is great. Sometimes they give the CGI game away a little with the bow waves of some of the ships. I was watching that, mm. and you could see sense a sort of a, this doesn't look quite real, uh, but it's all very exhilarating, just like Jaws. Yeah. And they've got the you know the little minesweepers, and then the big uh, Taiko heavy cruiser, which appears at one stage. And then all of these have got deep histories. Like the Taiko yeah. s- survived more or less World War Two, so it was available for this film, sort of thing. <laughs> uh, the the little minesweepers, I thought they were extraordinarily gutsy sort of little boats. 
Uh, you know, so all of that stuff I thought worked really well in the film, considering, especially considering the low budget. And yeah. I know that may translate into sweatshops for animators and stuff like that. But, yeah, yeah. You know, so being aware of that as well. So, yeah, uh, and the soundtrack is great. It's by um, uh, Neiko Sato, and he's actually worked before a lot with um, Yamazaki, the director. So let's have another track from that. And this is called Elegy. And this is very different Mm. from the quotes from the 1954 Godzilla that we had. Although, you know, in its own way, kind of uplifting. And I don't mean being picked up by Godzilla and hurled across the city. Uplifting. Triple R. Hello, my name's Sylvester McCoy. I play Doctor Who number seven. And you're listening to me, and you're also listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. <laughs> Sylvester McCoy would have to be talking to the animals as Radagast the Brown in the Godzilla movie, and I don't think that would work too well. Anyway, uh, Naiko Sato's track there from Godzilla Minus One Elegy. Beautiful score in and of itself. The, the scoring of this film was fantastic. I think that was actually one of the things that really pepped up the action and also added to those emotional notes. And I think, and I don't always say this, but silence and slow motion were used very well to mm. enhance the action in this film. Mm. Yeah, those almost manga-like pauses that you get in a samurai sort of uh, Chanabara movie where, or animation for that matter, where... Um, where Godzilla freezes before he's going to do something. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes they're overused and it doesn't have the impact, but I thought it was all really beautifully sort of <laughs> sensed and deployed in this film. See, you know, we could sort of resile from it and say, well, it's pretty damn good considering it's about a giant lizard, but in Zero-G we don't care about such things. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and, and honestly it's not. It's about post-war Japan mm. and and it's about how to survive after a great war. And so it's about so much more, And but Godzilla does look great. Yeah. <laughs> right, this is actually, you know, this. if you said to me, Rob, of the uh, 30-odd Godzilla movies, would you call this, where would you rate this? I'd put it right up there at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you could make a good, strong argument for it being the best Godzilla movie ever. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I honestly came out of it having really felt the highs and lows and the action was spectacular. I thought it looked fantastic. There were some moments that I thought were a little melodramatic. Like there was still some elements that I thought made it – it's hard to explain, but I overall enjoyed it immensely and I thought it was really a pleasant surprise. And it had been hyped up quite a bit, so it stood up to those expectations. I was wondering, without giving too much away, if the ending was a little hokey, but I thought by the end of the film they'd earned it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have a little quote from the director and it doesn't give anything away, but he basically just said that I think it's more cinematic if it doesn't end neatly and properly. Hmm. It's not just so a sequel can be made. It's hmm. also so the characters are kept alive in the hearts of the audience. Yeah. And I thought that was really nice. Yeah, I think a nice director for a giant, for a Daikaiju movie. <laughs> he did it so well. Yeah. I also like the, uh, just one little tiny bit of a point, I like the little um, experimental plane that they used in, this, mm. in the aircraft, uh, which is actually real. Yeah. Um, I think there's only one intact um, Sample of that stuck in a, an American uh, aviation museum somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, it's just one of those little things and, and work quite well and 
it's one of those quirks of uh, Japanese filmmakers. They just love all that sort of experimental aviation stuff. All right, well, that's Godzilla Minus One. Highly recommend. Mm. If I had to um, go on the uh, yeah, nah, maybe I would go uh, hi. It is definitely a great Godzilla movie, and it's a pretty damn good movie anyway. Yeah, I'd say even if you don't look at it just as a Godzilla movie, I think it's definitely well worth a watch regardless. Yeah, if you try and watch it just as a family drama, you might have some problems. I don't know, I think you could still do it. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think it's just a great movie, Godzilla or not. Mm, Godzilla or not. (laughs) Well, over to the Doctor who would probably be able to handle... I mean, he's handled some pretty giant monster incursions in his time as the Mm. Doctor, you know. So we are in the three episode specials for the 60th anniversary, another anniversary there, uh, with David Tennant reprising his role as actually a later edition of the Doctor and also uh, Donna Noble, uh, Catherine Tate playing Donna Noble again. We've already discussed how there was... Uh, a really good resolution to the the do, the Donna dilemma mm-hmm. uh, from oh, what fifteen years ago oh, <laughs> of how she could not um, remember her time with the doctor else she would die her brain would explode mm. but they sorted that out uh, yes we are doing spoilers for the second one which was last week the third one has dropped dropped on the weekend so that's all over until we get to the Christmas special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just an amazing episode, the second one. It was called Wild Blue Yonder. It was set on the edge of known space, or actually on the edge oh. of the universe. Okay. On a deserted, or was it, spaceship? <laughs> or was it? Uh, it actually seemed to be have a crew member who was very much like the race of like horse-headed aliens from in the uh, hmm. in the Marvel universe, but. Uh, enough of that. Um, there were these. It was a, basically a two-hander. It was just Catherine Tate mm-hmm. and David Tennant uh, and their evil doppelgangers. Oh, the, the not the not things. I'm interested. It was a great horror story. I was really disturbed by it. I'm not sure if I would recommend it to have kids watching it. <laughs> now there were two other, other guest stars beyond that wonderful thing of having your main actors playing evil versions of themselves. Um, you had Bernard Cribbins reprising his uh, beloved role as Wilf, mm-hmm. um, that old paratrooper who was, you know, kicking around with a noble family for so long. And, and also Bernard Cribbins, of course, uh, played a policeman in the 1960s Doctor Who movie, uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth. So, you know, full circle here as he plays another character at the at the end of his career and his life, actually, because he died not a few weeks later after they finished this. Uh, so it was great to see him one last time. And somebody, there was a controversy about um, uh, Isaac Newton, Mr Isaac Newton mm-hmm. in the story at this stage because he hasn't become a knight. <laughs> hasn't discovered, hasn't sure. discovered mavity. He hasn't the, done anything. <laughs> mavity, as the doctor says. What was that word you said? Oh, mavity. Yes. Um, played by uh, Nathaniel Curtis, and he is uh, basically not a white bread actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was enormous controversy. You know, nonsense, nonsensical. How can you do? How can you do this? Is like uh, of, of um, Indian descent, I think. Uh, how can you have? How can you do that? Uh, playing Isaac Newton, and I thought, I never even noticed. <laughs> so there's all this controversy erupts around me online, and I'm thinking, what? Oh yeah, I don't care. Move on. 
<laughs> so um, this story, it, um, it moved me in, in a lot of places because it actually allowed to have some quality conversations between Donna and the doctor about what had just happened and right. about how they'd moved on with their lives or not in the case maybe. And, of course, um, uh, the doctor is still suffering from the events of the flux not suffering from the flux, but from the events of the flux, as seen in the Jodie Whittaker stories. Right. You know, of, of the universe going into chaos. And, yeah. Uh, so that's still in play. So I just love this story. It's a great one. Um, a real treasure in the Doctor Who canon. And we will be seeing the Giggle episode next. We, it's dropped, but I don't want to talk yep. about it too much. I tell you what, Neil Patrick Harris, I've always known he could play evil very well. Yeah, I bet. Oh, <laughs> I believe it. great in this. Uh, there's some callbacks to previous Doctor Who episodes, of course, a lot of them, and some special stars and guests uh-huh. and stuff. And as you know, this is like the the introduction yep. for the, uh, the Shooty Gatwa character mm-hmm. going forwards for the Christmas special, the new Doctor. And they... It's like for watching all of this, Russell T. Davis, who's done the script and, you know, all that sort of stuff uh, for this, he's coming back. He's come back as well. Mm. And to see him write these stories now, I feel like he's gotten more sophisticated. Yeah. And it's like watching someone do a particularly good landing in some athletic event, uh-huh. to use a sports sports and metaphor. Right. You know, just that perfect yeah, I hesitate to say perfect ten landing, and you just go, "Oh, bravo, sir! That yep. was so yep. well done." So yeah, you've got that to look forward to if you haven't watched it yet. And I know this is it's tricky because it's on Disney Plus; it's no mm. longer on the ABC. You might not have that. Yeah, yeah. So I do tell you, we're spoilers, but not just this week. Yeah, <laughs> for that. So yeah, please check that one out when it comes out. It's on uh, Disney Plus at the moment, and it drops like Sunday. So yeah. So next week will be Christmas special. No, next. Oh, yeah. Um, or the week no, after. No, no, the week after. Right. We've got two weeks till Christmas. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Zuma. I know. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we are going to go out today with a track. Well, I think we'll um, go with uh, Doctor Who after 60 years tells us what life is all about. <laughs> I'm into a bit whimsical tracks today. And um, Joe Bernatic will be coming up next with Astral Glamour. All right, so these 60th anniversary specials, they've been very focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've learned a lot about the, the Doctor and Donna. And there, there have been a lot of moments where they've reset the whole story uh, just so that um, it'll be all sort of ready to go for the new Doctor, and yeah. I like that too. We've had yeah. new TARDIS interiors, new sonic screwdrivers, and wow, mm. I'm just so excited by this. And I've had actually a, a good time watching television shows and at the cinema this year, basically. Yeah, it's been a good year. Mm. Asteroid City, love Yeah, that. I still haven't watched that. Oh, no. I've gone a bit off Anderson, to be honest. Oh. <gasps> Oh, too, I'm a bit fatigued of him. Too symmetrical. I think he's, he's <laughs> becoming a parody of himself, but I haven't seen Asteroid City, so. Ah, okay. Uh, I enjoyed The Marvels. I thought it was a, a great little screwball comedy, writ, perhaps written too large. <laughs> <laughs> we'll agree to disagree on some elements of The Marvels. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. was fun. Yeah. And I, yeah. En- I enjoyed a fun superhero movie. Uh, you know, so, and we've watched so much on television this year. Not all of it has been KG stuff. 
No, but the decent chunk, I would say one of my big surprises of genre films, at least, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Oh, yeah. Just such a nice, like, not complex, not overly layered, but just really nicely executed action mm. coming-of-age animation. Mm. Maybe we should consider this at more length <laughs> as we come up to uh, the new year and Christmas and all that. All right, so Joe Brunetti, coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And we'll go out with Doctor Who after 60 years tells us what life is about. A very Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so was Doctor Who, actually, last episode. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.